So we will not be speaking about if even the wind and waves part two this morning, uh, nor will, will, will we be using those three verses in your bulletin. So bear with us. We're going to see if we can make this work. There will be some scripture verses up on the screen relating to this morning's message. So uh, again, I hope that God is able to reveal something to help you in your walk with him this morning. So if I were to list a category of things or hobbies that do not match very well with me, there would be three obvious ones that would be at the top of the list. And that would be automotive work, that would be gardening, and that would be anything to do with tools or construction. Those are not my areas of experience. If I were to try and participate in any of those activities right now in my current state, chances are engines would be blown up, plants would wither and die, and buildings would collapse. I lack both knowledge and wisdom in those three departments. Now if I were to read and listen to and take inventory of my personal bank of knowledge and wisdom about those three areas, there is a good chance that I could participate in those hobbies without basically setting fire to any of those particular avenues. But even if I were to gain knowledge, and even if I were to be wise about what I did around cars or plants or tools and construction, chances of me being able to lead projects in those areas are very slim to none. I am a gifted communicator. I like sports and playing sports. I like hanging out with our community's adolescents and having a good time with them. There are certain things that I like to do and can do very well, and there are other things that I just don't have enough knowledge in. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. This idea of knowledge and wisdom. You see, there's a common misconception in today's society surrounding knowledge and wisdom. And that misconception is they're the same thing. When in reality, they are two distinct processes. They're two distinct human qualities. In my research that I was doing, all 10 hours that I had to put this message together, I came up with some definitions. Knowledge is an awareness of rules, laws, guidelines, and information, plus the ability to retain said material. Knowledge is having the information presented to you in such a way where you can read it, you can listen to it, you can understand it, and then it's locked away in the bank of your mind in a position where you can pull it out when you need it. Wisdom 
is applying knowledge to your daily life. So knowledge is getting it and storing it. Wisdom is using it. In a biblical sense, one would define knowledge as reading up on and remembering all the things that the Bible shares with us. All 66 books, all of the rules, and all of the principles, all of the things that God wants us to read up on and remember, that is biblical knowledge. In Proverbs 9 verse 10, it says that knowledge of the Holy One results in good judgment. Knowledge of the Holy One results in good judgment. So biblical knowledge is when we comprehend correctly as we know God. So when we have a relationship with God and we know God, we know what we ought to do. But the problem is, we often don't do what we know we ought to do. There's a very famous verse that Paul wrote in Scripture that says, I know what I want to do, but I don't do it. I cry out to do the things that the Spirit wants me to do, but the flesh overtakes me and I do the things that I don't want to do. So we can have all the knowledge in the world about what the Bible says, but we may have a difficult time of doing it. That's where wisdom comes in. That's where biblical wisdom comes in. You see, wisdom in a biblical sense is applying what the Bible says into your daily routine. Being biblically wise is reading up on God's instructions for our life and then putting them into practice. Practicing what you preach. Remembering that if the Bible says to love your neighbor as yourself, you love your neighbor as yourself. If the Bible calls you to serve others, you serve others. If the Bible says for us to go over and pray for our friends who are going through an illness and anoint their head with oil, why not? That's being biblically wise. The same verse, Proverbs 9.10, says fear of the Lord is the foundation of wisdom. Fear of the Lord is the foundation of wisdom. Now that particular sentence can have some negative connotations to it because we hear the word fear. Well, I don't want to fear the Lord. I want to come closer to God. I don't want to be in a position where I'm away from Him, where I'm going away from Him because I fear Him and I'm afraid of Him. Point taken. How that particular scripture was written, fear of the Lord is understanding that God is in command and that God is in charge. Fear of the Lord is realizing that all of us, we need to make smart, Christ-centered choices with the knowledge that we have. That's what fear of the Lord means. It's not being in fear of his wrath or his judgmental attitude. God has those. He absolutely does. But we also need to remember that God is loving and that God is forgiving and that God desires us 
to be in a close walking relationship with him. He's not going to be one to push us away. We are the ones who walk away from him. So fear of the Lord is understanding and recognizing that God knows what's best for our lives and that we need to take the information we have from Scripture and make choices that match what we know. There's a passage in the letter that James wrote, the book of James, chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. It's a very famous passage that speaks of how once we have the knowledge and our faith grows, we are called to respond in a certain way. James 2, 14 through 17 says, What good is it, my friends, if you say you have faith, but don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anybody? Suppose you see someone who has no food or clothing, and then you say, goodbye, have a good day, stay warm, eat well, but then you don't give that person food, or you don't give that person clothing. What good are you actually doing? You see, faith by itself is not enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it's dead and useless. So, knowledge is knowing. Being wise is acting on the knowledge that we have. And our faith will grow. Our faith will get to levels that we've never experienced before if we allow ourselves to be biblically wise in what we do. I've mentioned before in previous sermons that God designed our bodies to operate like a filter. That our head is the start of the filter chain and it goes through our heart and it ends out in our hands and feet. That what we think on becomes how we feel and how we feel determines how we act. This is, a, this is along that same idea. Because if we know what we ought to do, the actions that we do should echo what we think on. Knowledge, being biblically knowledgeable, leads to being biblically wise. But there's a catch here. There's always a catch. There are people who are biblical scholars who have spent their entire life looking at the Bible knowing about its history, its characters, its context, who know everything there is to know about a particular section in the Holy Scriptures. They've read it front to back countless times. But some of them just view this as a piece of literary work. That's all they think of it. It's a book that they have studied it's a book that they know cover to cover, but they don't do 
anything that the Bible says. They don't view this as the inspired Word of God designed not to be a piece that we read in classrooms, but is designed to be a love letter from God to tell us how much He loves us, what He is doing to redeem us, how He wants us to show that act of redemption through our own actions. Take that over and view it on the other side. There are people who know absolutely nothing compared to what the biblical experts know. But they understand the true eternal significance of this book. They understand that this is more of a map or a compass than just a book that's collecting dust on the shelf. They understand that when Jesus speaks about the greatest commandment, he's not saying it just to add ink to pages. He's saying it for us to live out. That greatest commandment, in case you need your mind refreshed, we can find that in Matthew 22, 36 through 40. When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees with his reply, they met together to question him or trap him again. An expert in religious law. Did you catch that? An expert in religious law tried to trap him with this question. Teacher, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally as important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. Did you catch that? An expert in religious law, someone who knew everything that there was to know about the Old Testament scrolls at that time, came up and was challenging our Lord on an intellectual question. Teacher, I know everything. And so what do I need to do? What, what, what is there left that I need to accomplish? Our Lord flips that and says, you really want to know the answer. Well, the answer is not in how much you know. The answer is how willing you are to serve. How willing you are to set aside your ambitions and your prideful mind to love those around you. We can have all the information about God and Jesus Christ in our mind. It's at our disposal. The Bible has never been more accessible than it is right now. But if we don't invite Christ into our hearts and begin to see 
a life lived for him, we're missing the point. The point is love. God is love. He wants us to love others. In 1 John 4, there's a whole chapter devoted to this idea of if God is love and I love God and God lives in me, then I'm pretty full of love. I have a lot of love in me. So what happens with all of that love? Well, let me paint a picture for you. Imagine that God is a full water pitcher and we are a small little cup. When we invite Christ into our hearts, He begins to pour His love into us. Until eventually, the cup gets full and there's nowhere else for the liquid to go. So what happens? It overflows. God's love overflows. We can take the love of God that is too big for us to handle and we share it with others. We share it through our encouraging words. We share it through our selfish, selfish, selfless, not selfish, not selfish, selfless deeds. We share it by inviting our friends and our neighbors to experience community in a church like this. We share it by forgiving others when they have hurt us. There's a man who lived a long time ago who was very famous in his time period. And he can teach us a lot about this idea of knowledge and wisdom. His name was Solomon. Solomon was the son of King David, the greatest king in the kingdom of Israel's history. And like it was customary in that time, when David passed away, when he died, the kingdom of Israel went to someone in his family. And Solomon was chosen to be the next king. Now when I was looking at Solomon's life, I couldn't find an exact scripture verse to tell of his age when he ascended to the throne, but I have to guess he was a very young man when it happened. And so imagine yourself in Solomon's position. You've been raised in the kingdom family all your life, and then all of a sudden, it's handed to you. How do you respond? How do you lead? Well, Solomon recognized his own flaws and his own faults. And what he did is he asked God for a very specific thing to help him lead the kingdom. He asked for wisdom because he knew he lacked it. 1 Kings 3, 7 through 14. I'm going to paraphrase and jump around that. But listen to what happened. 
Solomon is speaking. He says, O Lord my God, you've made me king in place of David, but I am like a little child who doesn't know his way around. Here I am in the midst of your own chosen people, a nation so great and numerous that they cannot be counted. Give me an understanding heart so that I can govern your people and know the difference between right and wrong. For who by himself is able to govern this great people of yours? The Lord was pleased with Solomon for asking that. And he replied, Since you have asked for wisdom in governing my people with justice, and haven't asked for wealth or fame or a long life or the death of your enemies, I'm going to give you what you asked for. I'm going to give you a wise and understanding heart such as no one has had or ever will have. In other words, Solomon was and still is the wisest man who has ever walked the face of the earth. I'm also going to give you, Solomon, what you didn't ask for, riches and fame. No other king in all the world will be compared to you for the rest of your life. If you follow me and obey my decrees and commands as your father David did, I will give you a long life. So, congratulations, Solomon. Well done. You were aware of the things that you needed to rule effectively. You asked out of a selfless need, and God gave it to you. You ruled with wisdom, and the kingdom of Israel prospered like never before. But just as in every other case of being a human being, sin crept into the picture. And Solomon's wisdom was trumped by Solomon's lust. Just call it for what it is. His infatuation with women turned his heart away from God. Those women in his life turned him to worship other gods, many from the lands that they came from. Did you catch what God said in that last particular passage from 1 Kings 3? If you follow me and obey my decrees and commandments as David did, I will give you a long life. Solomon started out pretty well, but then things took a tumble. Eventually, God got a hold of him, and in 1 Kings 11, he said, Solomon, it's not working out. Since you haven't kept my covenant, since you haven't obeyed my decrees, I'm going to tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your servants. Okay, Neil, that's cool. Solomon's a, a, a cool story. We get it. What does that have to do with knowledge and wisdom like you've been trying to, to tell us so far? What I'm trying to tell you, what God has revealed to me is we can possess all the knowledge and we can have all of the, the wisest intentions about using those knowledge. But if our hearts and minds aren't aligned with God's, it serves no one. Let me say that again. We can possess all the knowledge and wisdom that we strive for. But if our hearts are not aligned with God's, it serves no one and doesn't fulfill a purpose. 
Being biblically wise about how we use our knowledge is crucial to our walk with the Lord. <clears throat> the last thing I want to say about this is that there are going to be some people who will twist what I'm trying to say into an idea that says we have to do things, we have to be wise, and we have to show that in countless ways for us to be in good favor with God. God has given us knowledge, we need to be wise about what we do, and we need to do it. There's this thought process that's called legalism. Legalism is basically relying on your actions and what you do for God instead of keeping the faith and trusting in what Christ has done for you. It can be a hard concept to understand, but basically legalism is like this. I have a list of things, of all the things that I have to do to prove to God that I love Him, to prove my worth to Him. And legalism is going down and checking them all off. Fed the hungry, check. Prayed today, check. Led someone to Christ, check. Attended church, check. Invited someone to church, check. Check, check, check. And so forth. That is legalism. It's the idea that we have to do things to stay in the good grace of God. Some people might confuse what I'm saying with going into that particular mindset. And I'm not saying that at all. Because legalism is about doing things to earn God's salvation, to earn God smiling at us and saying, I love you, my child. You've done 25 wonderful things for me this week. Next week, I'm going to expect the same. That's not how God operates. If you embrace this idea of legalism, any misstep is terrifying. Anything that you don't do, you are haunted by, and you think that you are not going to earn God's favor and love because you didn't do it. In legalism, you are always one good deed away. You're always going to be one good deed away. Have you ever read through the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy? And you've seen all of the laws and all of the guidelines and all of the rules that God expected the Israelites to do? There aren't a whole lot of places that allow you to stumble if you look at those thousands of rules in the Old Testament. God was preparing us to see just how important Jesus Christ was. Because when Christ came down, he said, no longer are you having to worry about doing every single thing in the law of Moses. 
There were a lot of animals that were sacrificed in the Old Testament time. I don't even think anyone has an accurate number of how many animals were sacrificed in the Old Testament time. But what Jesus Christ came to do is He lifted us. He gave us the key to our jail. And he, he, he set us free from this bondage because then we were able to grasp the tremendous sensation of God's grace and God's love. Christ has done one thing that overpowers and overshadows everything that we could possibly do. When he sacrificed himself on the cross, God was in effect saying, no longer are you having to follow all of these rules, all of these laws, all of these Old Testament practices. They are important. Things like don't kill, don't lie, honor your mother and father. They are still valid, but our salvation is now totally dependent on Jesus Christ. When Christ came down to fulfill the law, he didn't really change any of the core Old Testament rules and principles. He dabbled in a few. The Old Testament may have said, if someone stole something from you, you can steal something from them. Well, Jesus came to say, hey, if someone stole something from you, love them. Don't go back and try and get your thing back. If some, Jesus says, if someone steals your cloak, offer them your staff or offer them your shirt instead. Being biblically wise is more of wanting to honor God and worship God with our service than having to do it out of necessity. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul says this about how our mindset should not be on our deeds anymore, but instead on what Christ has done. In Philippians 3.3, Paul says, We rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us. We put no confidence in human effort. And then he follows that up in verse 9, saying, I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. I am not an expert in this concept of legalism, nor am I an expert in this idea of comparing biblical wisdom and, and biblical knowledge. But what I do know is that our desire to serve, our passion for wanting to be wise in how we as Christians live every day 
is not due to God keeping a master checklist up in heaven. We want to follow the commands of God and follow what Jesus has done because we want to. We read how much God loves us and how much he cares for us. It is repaying him. It is honoring him when we obey what God says. It's an act of worship when we listen to and follow his words. We want to be an example for others to look at. We want them to see how much Christ matters not only to us as individual believers, but to this entire church. We have the ability to transform Wynn, Arkansas in ways that we can't even imagine. If people can see how much we love God through the choices we make in how we serve Him. We want our biblical wisdom to lead others into the arms of Christ. So let's grow in our knowledge of God. Let's grow in showing wisdom as we serve and as we act and as we pray for one another. Let's do our best to understand the scriptures serve a purpose. And that purpose is to reveal God to us and to instruct us how to live a life that's honoring him. Let us take heart and remember that God forgives us, that God is merciful, that he shows us grace when we stumble. Let us use those moments where we mess up, not to get doubt on our luck, not to say, oh darn, that means that's six other things I have to do now to get into heaven. No, let's use those, those, those failures in our lives to show others that Christians aren't perfect, that we make mistakes, but that we understand the need and the desire to want to get better and to not stay in the same place where we are. That's why in the opening prayer, I said that we would leave this place changed and walk out different than when we came in. We need to remember that Christ is the ultimate example of knowledge and wisdom. It's all about Christ. It's all about the cross. It's remembering His holiness, His righteousness are now in us. Our trash, our sin, all of the negative things in our life, they were taken from us by Jesus Christ. And we shouldn't have to dwell on those things anymore.
So let us understand that we can know everything there is to know about Jesus. But if we don't show what we know about Jesus, we're missing the mark. Will you pray with me? Father, it's a hard concept to swallow. But we know that as we take little bites from your word this morning, give us the strength and the ability to take this home, to process on it, to let it stir in our hearts and minds so that in our own personal reflection and quiet time this week, we can earnestly discern if we are being wise like you want us to. And help us to serve and love others and be selfless, not because of the need to prove our worth to you, but to do it because you've proven your love for us. And we are honoring you by how we love and serve. In your name we pray. Amen.